Hello and welcome to Lady Time, a podcast on midlife. I am your host, Carol Fitzpatrick, and my guest today is the wonderful Susanna Sweeney. Hi, Susanna. You're very welcome. And thanks for joining us on the show. Susanna has been helping people change their lives for over 25 years. She is a sensory motor psychotherapist, also trained in EMDR, an accredited member of the British Association for Counseling and Psychotherapy. And more recently, she has added havening techniques to her toolbox. She helps people overcome the effects of all kinds of trauma, right down to the more difficult to spot but pervasive effects of developmental childhood trauma in ultra short-term therapy programs. Any frustration in life, such as feeling unfulfilled in business or life, and symptoms such as anxiety or low mood, even chronic pain, usually link back to some event that has been traumatically encoded by the brain. Susanna sees it as her mission to help her clients overcome these symptoms and frustrations so that they can increase their enjoyment levels in life and their earning potential in business. Having fallen in love with havening techniques, she now also trains professionals and those to be in the wonderful modality that already actively changes the face of the therapy, healing and coaching space. Susanna, that sounds brilliant. You're so welcome. And uh, I can't wait to ask you about all those different therapies you practice. So well, nice to be here, Carol, and to chat with you. Thank you, Susanna. Uh, Susanna, we're going to start with, with how we start with everybody. So I'm going to ask you about uh, your midlife, um, how, how, what has been foremost in your mind, what feelings did you have? And currently midlife and perimenopause is... Uh, is in the media everywhere, which is fantastic. So it's a good time to just check in with you around that. You're in midlife, aren't you? Haha. <laughs> well, yesterday, actually, I saw one of these little memes on Facebook. The, the ages have been redefined for all these things. So according to that, I'm not in midlife at all. We don't enter midlife until we're over 60 years of age. And oh. that was the increasing life expectancy that humans now have. So I thought that was really exciting. I'm looking forward to being in midlife, Carol. <laughs> That's great. And, and you're right. I mean, you know, there, there is uh, some truth in that. Because someone said that to me recently. I'm not going to live till I'm 60 something. I'm not going to live till I'm 70. I'm going to be much older than that. So midlife starts later. Um, but you and your feelings so far as you approach midlife, how has it been for you? Has it been an easy ride, a difficult one or what's been present for you? Well, when they say when I came up to 40, I was dreading it and it was definitely like a huge um, barrier, you know, that if you went to the other side of that, this was going to be downhill from here on in or so I thought about it. And that didn't materialize. And then I was kind of a little bit tentative coming up to 50. I was like, well, now definitely, you know, it's going to be downhill from here on in. And the opposite is actually true for me. I feel better than ever, I have to say. I think there's something that happens when you go into midlife. Maybe it's a thing for women in particular, that there's something about you just don't question yourself as much anymore as you as you would have done. Like I like I would have suffered from a lot of self doubt, um, really all my life. 
And there's something about that that kind of, it stopped in middle age. Um, I mean, with all the various pieces of work I was doing as well on myself with the hypnotherapy and, you know, and the havening as well. So when that self-doubt stopped, it was like I really stepped into my own boots and I started really trusting my intuition and what came from the inside. And I'm just more able now to claim my space in the world and just not give a toss what other people are thinking. You know, they can all have their, everybody can be on their own path. They can make their judgments about me if they like, that's all fine. Um, But here I am and I'm doing my own thing. And I think, I think that happens for other women too. It's kind of a, it's like a, you get to the stage where you just really don't give a toss. Yeah. It's a nice empowered place to be, isn't it? It's very empowered. Yeah. And I'm here drinking my coffee um, alongside chatting with you. So yeah, it feels empowered and it feels there's something about it that like I've calmed down. Hmm. you know there's something where you you kind of it feels on my side like I'm sinking into myself I'm just really arriving and there's something calm about that there's something that doesn't have to be frantic at all it's just like here I am and it's all happening and there's a thing that I'm getting into now which is called different things and different cultures or different approaches but I call it being in flow Mm. it's something that I only experienced when I was painting previously where you can after a while it's like um, you know when it when the painting works out well it's like you can forget your sense of time your sense of place and there's only you and the painting and you're really um, deeply engrossed in the process and it's all evolving naturally without your conscious effort without any criticism of your own because I would have been a very bad critic of myself and now that's spreading into other parts of my life where I'm like more able to tell when I'm in flow and when I'm not and when I'm not in flow I change what it is I'm working on or what it is I'm doing so I can tweak that and be be back in flow being in flow it just feels so amazing it's the most amazing thing ever when you're working from your center and everything is in line it's I would almost call it a spiritual experience have you had it yes yes I I think so yeah it's in alignment I say if you're in alignment and in the flow and it's yeah it's definitely if your energy is uh you, you just feel it you're you feel and it's a good way Susanna to know when things aren't in alignment for you is because you're not in that flow and that's to say well maybe that that thing is not for me you know and it's a good way to judge what when making decisions what's right for me and what's not right for me if it fe- feeds into that flow feeling great and if it's not might not be for me yes exactly it's really being connected to the intuition mm-hmm. and knowing what's right and rather than trying to fit in under anybody else's banner or anybody else's idea, it's like really just listening to what comes from the inside. Absolutely. So it's been a very positive step, uh, stepping into midlife. Um, that sounds like it is for you. I would say overall, it really has been, Carol. I mean, there's all these, you know, symptoms of perimenopause that we all get. And, you know, I mean, you notice 
changes in your physical body and I mean there's challenges too with that it's not you know it's not all um, what have you met as a challenge say in the physical side of things so so one thing that started happening for me is and I've only recently realized it's actually a symptom of perimenopause is I became gluten intolerant Mm. After my daughter was born, my daughter was born when I was 41 and it was straight after her birth that I noticed I could really physically notice changes in my guts, but your guts being affected is part of perimenopause. So I've been in perimenopause since then, and I just didn't realize at all. Yeah, that's true. There's so many symptoms, aren't there? Like um, that would be one I would relate to as well, Susanna is uh, the gut and not being able to eat as things. I mean, I can eat what I want, but it's uncomfortable if I eat uh, gluten. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one that and that that's quite young that you felt it. But great, you had your child then. Um, it's mm-hmm. great that we were having children in our 40s um, and without issues. Um, it's fantastic. And anything else? I mean, one of the things I found as well, Susanna, was... Um, I don't know if it's related to the gut, but it's definitely related to um, perimenopause is my eyes. My eyes get sore um, and I need to take magnesium for my eyes. You know, the dry eye, something people don't relate to uh, perimenopause at all. There's so many symptoms that. Um, yeah, well, one thing that that happens is you become long sighted. I've always been short sighted since I was a kid. And now suddenly it's like the the difficulties with reading. So. I actually had to get myself very focal glasses for the first time ever. And mind you, they don't work very well. So I end up pushing them up all the time when I'm reading. So, you know, you notice those, those little things, um, but, you know, it's not like becoming really old and elderly and fragile, not just yet, you know? No, absolutely so, not. And no. then what, you, what I noticed too was... Um, And my osteopath gave me the input on that, how there's certain muscle groups that start deteriorating a bit when you're losing muscle mass from this age on, definitely from 45 on. And there's certain muscle groups that suffer more than others when that occurs. So exercise becomes really crucial because you have to keep those muscle groups um, those particular ones that are prone to deteriorating. Do you know what, what part of the body he was talking about? Or is it just- well, with me specifically, it was up here. So you get a pull. So um, because we're listening yes. and I'm, I'm actually looking at you, so I'm going to talk through that for the listeners. So yes. the shoulders coming forward, mm-hmm. that's something that happens. So what happens is the, the muscle groups that are already weaker, the ones that pull us back the way, they suffer more than the muscles that pull forward. And hence you have to um, stretch these and exercise these a bit, the ones here at the front. Great. That pull us back the way so that you can keep your posture and um, and not come forward and down. Brilliant. That's great. And I presume the core as well. I mean, the muscles definitely around the core change, don't they? And, And... doing exercises will help that well I like he said to me my osteopath said to me it's really overall that you get a decline in muscle mass 
So I don't know specifically how that works out for other muscle groups, but it's definitely, it's just that you really, and I have been very bad with exercise. So for me, that's a huge thing is to really consciously step into that space where you exercise the body because now you need to, you Mm -hmm. have to. So I go for walks now every day. I walk four kilometers every day and I do some specific stretches and, you know, things like that. But it's good too, because you're really like, it creates a space where you really have to connect with your body. And it's quite nice to mm-hmm. do that, you know, to take that time and really feel your body. Absolutely. And we've had some guests talk about, so we've had some yoga teachers on here, Christine Malloy and Noreen O'Grady. And they, they've talked about the, the, importance of doing weight bearing exercises as well um, for the bones mm. and um, the bones, bone density weakens mm. and more so for some people who maybe are skinnier than, than others, they, they really have to work on that weight bearing for the bones. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of symptoms. They're not just uh, hot flushes. Um, and I know they can be unbearable for people and they could be very bearable for some people. We're all different, isn't it? We're all different. But this thing of deteriorating going into midlife is a myth, isn't it? Mm. It definitely is. Well, I think spiritually or emotionally, it's mm. really an opportunity to completely step into your own space. Yes. And I think you see what happens to what I'm observing all around me and what I've seen, say, throughout COVID, right? Because COVID was one of those really challenging things it's you know it contains trauma energy in itself mm-hmm. and how you navigate that um, when a challenge comes along and how you navigate midlife that's a challenge in itself it really you get a good sense for have you done your work up until this point you know I'm talking about like on a personal development level and, and you really get if you've done your work internally you get your payoff and if you haven't done your work and if you're still sitting with anxiety depression low mood low confidence what have you then that's the call to action you really this is when you should take action if you want to fly through it and do well yes it's an opportunity the the the, the soul and the body mm. calls you to action through different Yeah, really, isn't it? And I've I've observed that. I've seen, like, you know, the people I know and people I'm connected to on Facebook throughout COVID, I was watching that and I could really see, I could really see people who had done their work, who were navigating it well and managed to, you know, sail through it with a sense of reality. And I've seen other people who obviously haven't done their work and gone completely into denial and, you know, conspiracy theories and and all of that side of things. And that's sort of what, that's sort of what happens. It's like, uh, you know, how, how well you can, how would I put that? It's really how well you can be connected to your defense system Mm -hmm. in a traumatic situation but also how connected can you stay to reality and still bear a reality that isn't particularly nice, you know? So rather than like when we're young, when we're children and something bad happens to us, 
we will automatically dissociate because we have no choice, right? We have no choice. We are dependent on the adults around us. We have to survive that scenario. So our brain makes it so that we dissociate so we can get through. But as an adult in midlife, if you've done your work and if you are connected to yourself, you can actually manage doing COVID without dissociating. Like I would, I would, the, you know, that sort of denial of that this it's just a flu or, you know, the other um, part of that, the conspiracy theories, I would call that dissociation from my um, standpoint. You know, it's a, it's okay. a desire to get away from a reality that we have. And if you've done your work, you can do that without dissociating. You can hold the reality of multiple things at the same time. You can say, um, this is a really bad thing that's happening, but just maybe there are some opportunities hidden here too. Maybe I can make something out of it to make this work for me and my family in the best way possible. Yes. So you don't have to glorify it either, like some people did, um, but just be somewhere in the middle and just hold that space, hold that sense of reality that, well, unfortunately, that's what we're faced with, but let's just see what we can make out of it. Mm, that's interesting. That's um, So you have definitely made something out of midlife opportunities, I think, from watching you online and your social media and knowing that you have uh, studied and gone into a whole new side of therapies uh you've you've over 25 years of working with people with trauma helping them to improve their lives but you've gone you well one you've gone down the the organizational uh, masters in developmental organization or was it a phd sorry no it wasn't a phd I, no, okay Carol, a i would have done i would have taken a two page phd level if i was 26 and if okay. i didn't have kids if i didn't have a family yeah, um, all I could give it was that one year. So and that was hard enough. Um, yeah, uh, but doing a master's full time in one year and still working alongside. And that really, I was only able to do that because my husband supported me. And he just took care of everything during that year. And that's the only way I was able to to get a first class honors in that year wow um, first class honors amazing yeah that's amazing. yeah it was it was well it was like I was really trying to prove something to myself I got into it kind of like playing a game seeing how far we can push this I got a taste early on when I got um, really good mark for my first assignment and then suddenly I got the taste for that because I missed out on college when I was young I dropped out and and I dropped out really because I was you know it was anxiety and depression that made me drop out when I was young I, I didn't have a sense of purpose in college and it just wasn't it just wasn't for me on that level it wasn't that I couldn't do the academia I could but I just had zero interest it wasn't mm -hmm. what I was at I was interested in finding my place in the world belonging number one but also making myself feel better and I yeah. achieved that by going into the therapy field but not having finished that college piece um, it was still always with me 
And when when I was doing the masters, I think I was kind of catching up on that piece of development and was a little bit childish in there that I really I started off promising myself I wouldn't overdo it. And of course, I completely overdid it and pushed it as far as I could push it. And I got my first and I got my offer for, you know, they do um, at UL anyway, they offer you um, uh, no fees for the first year of your PhD if you finish with the first Wow. I got all those offers and I was very flattered by those, but there was no way in the world that I would have done that to my family. Not at this stage in life to take another three years out yeah. and write a PhD. Um, but that's an amazing achievement. Getting a first is amazing because it takes everything, doesn't it? I mean, you really have to focus put the blinkers on with the rest of life and just focus on your work um and you were holding down a job and a job at home as mom and wife many roles keeping that together so that's amazing that's incredible mm. well done did you like it? I loved it I really loved it I have to say so once I found something that I was really into um so the organizational psychology it's it's really it draws on a number of my interests. It's really what happens in groups of people. So it's kind of taking the therapy mindset a little bit further away from just one-to-one work, but really looking at what happens in groups of people and in organizations and how some of these things play out. Um, that fascinated me and how this, there was decision-making was in it and the psychology of decision-making that is fascinating. And that gives you an insight to very much into the business world. Um, When it was delivered, it's delivered through the Kemi Business School in UL. And so you're getting an insight into all of that, into how the corporates work. And um, it was fascinating, really, really good. I loved it. But um, yeah, to be honest, I attribute much of that success to my very supportive sweet husband <laughs> he has to be mentioned because yes, he, he was amazing your husband is amazing isn't he he is and and he was the hero yeah throughout that year and he has his own health challenges and um you know and he had sick kids for part of that year there was a very bad flu going around and he was holding all of that because for part of the week i would be away in limerick i stayed in limerick two nights with a friend when between the lecture days and, you know, so that I would use the library and I I wouldn't lose that much time traveling back and forth, Mm -hmm. get some of my work done while I was down there. And so I wasn't there for those very bad nights. He had no support. He did all that on his own. Wow. Well, thank you, Colm, for helping Susanna finish her master's degree and uh, it sounds like a lot of support and we do we all need a lot of support and I think you mentioned there we also went to 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 thrive in an area we need to be intrinsically invested in the goal so you really loved that subject so you were invested in it yourself so that probably helped you keep going with it at such a level but you can't do that without the support. You're dead right. I find that myself with studying it. And if you don't have the support, it's really hard with anything in life. It's really hard to keep pushing yourself forward in something if you don't have a background of support from people. And it doesn't always have to be your, your partner. It can be friends. It can be a professional support. It can be any support, uh, family. But it's really important to have it. We're not meant to be solo creatures, are we? Absolutely not. 
Um, so, Susanna, thank you so much for sharing that about midlife. And I see you've really turned it into a powerful uh, challenge. But what has been your greatest challenge in life so far? Oh, goodness, Carol. <laughs> Isn't life one big challenge <laughs> and one challenge after another? I think, well, maybe my really my inner emotional transformation, I would say, you know, that's like, I mean, I came from a place where, like, you know me very well. Um, and you have, you've known me from what I was like in my 20s. We've known each other for a long time. Mm-hmm. So back then, even back then, I would have been very anxious and still, you know, on still had some remnants of the depression type stuff around as well. And so just to let our listeners know that you don't you're not from Ireland originally, but you came here when you were 20. Do you want to share where you're from? Yeah, I was just going to go into okay. that. Yeah. So the background to that is that I grew up in East Germany. So I grew up behind the wall and there was, you know, obviously. So I would call that a dictatorship now, no doubt. Um, and when you when you live in a dictatorship, you have very little power and control. Mm-hmm. And so that becomes, you know, your choices are very, very limited. So in East Germany, what it was like, your choices were either you stay and you submit to the system and to what you're expected to do within that, and you accept everything, you know, all the limitations, the fact that you can't travel, the fact that there's total censorship on media, the fact that you can never open your mouth, right? That all comes with that package if you stay or you leave your life behind completely Mm -hmm. as you know it, your property, your family, everything you've ever known and you try and escape to the West. Those were the choices. Um, from the mid 80s, they brought in an application process that you could apply to leave to the West. But actually, that was in place much earlier, but people didn't fully understand it until the mid 80s. So that's when it really took off. It wasn't publicized, you see, that there was this opportunity. They had to concede under the Helsinki Agreement in 1976. They had to make some humanitarian changes, but people didn't really realize. And in the mid 80s, when I was in my teens, that's when this really started taking off. So left, right and center, there were people that I knew who one day were here and the next day they were gone to the West. It came with the same um, with the same conditions that you would have had when you escaped. You lost your property. You lost your family. You could only apply as an individual to leave. I only know of one family that managed to leave as a family. So it was really, the stakes were very high, you know, and if you subscribe to the system, if you decided out of fear or for whatever reasons that you would stay, this came with a complete loss of power and control. You know, whatever, whatever thoughts or feelings you may have had about it, you had to keep to yourself. And that came with a package of depression, because ultimately that's what powerlessness will lead to. And it will come with anxiety because we were all afraid of the secret service. And so my parents had all of that. And my parents mm-hmm. were so afraid that they never, never, not even in my teens, talked to me about their reality and what they had been through. 
Um, this only happened much, much later after the wall came down. And so they just wanted me to be safe. And so they raised me within that framework of the brainwashing of the East German system. And so, and all that anxiety and depression that was modeled for me, I absorbed completely. That it was acting out in them. They were post-war generation anyway, so they already had it from when they were young children. And it was all passed down to me. And so by the time I was 19, I was in bits. Mm. Really, you know, I was like, um, and I was in total conflict with reality. I could see the system wasn't working at all. I had been in the factories. I had seen what the reality was like. I could see the environmental damage and just subjectively from the few things I observed. Really from when I was 14, I had a strong sense that this wasn't right. You know, and then you're, you're living with that conflict and it added to that charge. And it was really um, a very lonely experience because nobody would talk about it. Mm. My parents wouldn't talk about it. Nobody talked about it. And then the wall came down and everything that you had ever known was suddenly taken away from you. It was like a carpet being pulled from under your feet and suddenly there was no ground under your feet. And you were suddenly in what felt like free fall, left to your own devices, suddenly, you know, like a bird in a cage and you open the cage door and it's like, is that bird gonna fly out? And no, that bird was terrified. That bird was staying put in the cage because, you know, I had lost my orientation completely. And uh, it took me a long time to come to terms with that. And it was really only when I came to Ireland and I stopped hearing the German news on a daily basis. That's when I started finding my feet, really by being in a different reality and disconnecting from it all. And then I was able to um, do my work around that and, and get rid of that piece by piece, that anxiety and that depression. So that's where I came from. And I've, I mean, when you, you know, talking about challenges in life, I think overall, that's been the biggest challenge for me. I came from such extremes mm -hmm. that like throughout my teens, I was consistently suicidal, you know, and even in my early 20s, I was. And having come from that and coming to a place where I would say now that I feel um, I have very good self-esteem. I pride myself on that now. Mm -hmm. And I have growing confidence levels and I feel really okay about myself in the world. Mm. You know, it's been like a marathon, you know, to get there. So I would say Absolutely. that was the biggest challenge and, and not a payoff that I see now when, you know, I'm talking about things where you can see that you've done your work. And I see now my daughter is nine. We went for a walk yesterday as we do. Um, just locally here, it was mom, mom and daughter day. So it was just me and her going for that walk. And I took a photo of her on the walk and I could see her posing for the photo. She's very preteen now. So she's, you're starting to see that, you know, almost teenage girl coming in, but she was confident in her body. She knew exactly how to pose for the photo intuitively and 
she gave a sweet little smile and it was just I can see could see her confidence I could see her I know in every response that she gives me that she has really good self-esteem and I, I was just afterwards I was just really struck by that I'm so happy for her that she doesn't have to go through all that stuff that I had to go through and that's really and I'm really pleased that I was able to do my pairing parenting differently mm. you know that I've been able to shift so much in one generation and of course my husband is contributing hugely to that to just being right. able to let the kids be how they are and let them evolve in the way that's right for them but I, Dutch feels like a wonderful achievement Carol and I'm sure you see that with your own children yes yes that's amazing uh Susanna, like that story is so different to most of us, you know, growing up in a regime like that, you know, where it was the 1980s when it, 89, when the wall came down, I think, and we were aware of it and we saw the scenes. I saw the wall before it came down. We were aware of it when it came down, but not really aware of what it was like really to be living in that and to have the, the lack of choice and the impact that the trauma that causes the, the depression, the lack of control, and then being given the, the freedom is not something that's just easily accepted because you have all those limits. And when they go, there's a fear. Like I know, I do know people who are from Romania who say the older generation, they know now feel they've no purpose because they were always given a job where they had, and now they have to vie for their jobs and compete with other people. And it's not, it's just different. It's a completely different regime. But Susanna, recently you um, you took a step to find out uh, what was recorded because it was a secret service. So that's the other side of the dictatorship is the spying on you uh, by the state and by your community even. Mm -hmm. What was that like? Well, that's another fascinating little story. Let me see if I can sum it up in a mm -hmm. nutshell but yeah you have to realize um that the secret service it had two sides there was one side to the secret service in east germany which was foreign operations so spying abroad they were rated as the best secret service in the world they had lots of resources um and the top spy markus wolf wasn't known to the west they had no photo of him they were able to keep him um, what's the word, clandestine for the longest, longest time. And so they got really, really good results and were rated as the best foreign spy agency in the world. And then there was an internal branch to the Secret Service. And nobody knows how many people were really working for that part of the organization. You know, there's been a lot of, I think... Um, Germany has dealt with it relatively well. Um, there's a program under which you can ask um, for research to be done as to whether you have a Stasi file. Stasi was the shortening um, for this secret organization, Staatssicherheit, state security. So the beginnings of the two words are drawn together into Stasi. And you can, so you have a right to view that file um, if there is one, um, which I think is really good for people on a personal level 
to come to a place of peace with their past, maybe find out some more. Um, and then on our other levels, you know, I would say that the dealing with history wasn't done quite so well. But I suppose these things are never perfect. No. Um, and so for me, when I was a teenager, the awareness really started from when I was 14. I remember there was a crucial event. There was a passenger plane, um, a North Korean, a South Korean passenger plane that was shot down over Siberia and 256 people lost their lives. This was, I think it was in 1984. And I remember as a 14-year-old really following that story and how it was relayed in East German media. So first of all, they followed, they always followed the Russian line, mm. a Soviet Union line on this. And at first there was a denial this had not taken place at all, at all, um, where in the West German media, they were giving you some facts around it and produced some evidence. They denied it for about a week. And then there was a turnaround. And after the turnaround, they admitted it was shot down, but they said it was for defense reasons. And so as a 14 year old, when you're, you have high moral and ethical standards I think that's a real teenage quality and you're looking at that and you're going this is so wrong this you know how can because you see we would have always been fed the it was almost like a religion you were fed that this was the better society you were living in it was for the common good of all um it was the future of humanity and it wasn't perfect yet but it would be so it was a little bit like there was a promised land that we were moving towards and you know we weren't there yet but it was sure to come and then I saw that happening and I was like no that's so wrong how can that be for the good of humanity you can't you know you can't do that that's not okay and that was my waking up moment and from then on I started really seeing the world looking at the world through a very diff different lenses and then I started hearing things that I previously wasn't hearing. And so some of the stories I heard where there were people that I knew on both sides with the Secret Service, there were people that I knew that had been recruited by them, oh. who confided in me that they were recruited by them. Wow. There were people that were on the other side that were victims of the Secret Service. So specifically, I knew one guy who died at the hands of the Secret Service. And I knew all of this before I was 19, you know, so, and I was just an average teenager, you know, I was nothing out of the ordinary, I wasn't plugged into any particular circuit, but these are the things I picked up just from the people I knew and that I talked to. Very frightening. And yeah, yeah, so, so nobody really knows how many people were involved with the internal Mm. Um, spying so the speculations go between a ratio of one and ten you know as high as one and ten that there may be in every ten people in the population there may have been one who was recruited to voluntarily give information on their neighbors um i know my dad they tried to recruit my dad at one stage he sent them away um, and i witnessed that it was when i was about 15 there was a guy who called to our apartment 
And I just happened to be looking out the window at that time. And I saw him coming in and I was curious because we were at the end of the estate and it was like, who is this person? I don't know who they are. I'm dressed in beige and very kind of unnoticeable, you, you know, unremarkable uh, person. But I knew I didn't know him. And I normally knew everyone who came in the door of the apartment block. And so I was kind of curious. And then suddenly the bell rang of our apartment and he was let in. My parents let him in. He was asked into the living room. And of course, I listened in on the conversation. And what it was, was that they wanted my dad to spy on the neighbors because the neighbors had applied for, I think it was just a holiday abroad um, and they were refused. And then they were so uh, dismayed that they laid down a responsibility that they had had for a long time. They were like, no, you do your own stuff. <laughs> if I can't travel, then you do your own stuff. And that was enough to trigger the Stasi being let loose on them. And my dad actually did something that very, very few people did. Um, I'd say 99% of people approached would not have dared to turn them down. And my dad turned them down. I was thinking that he was so brave. That's a really courageous thing to do. And mm -hmm. lovely that you heard it. Or was it? Yeah. So that suddenly there was a ruckus in the living room and I knew to retreat very quickly. And he was basically throwing this man out. He told him to leave. Great. He said, Good, goodbye, comrade. Now, my dad was in the party, but, you know, he was one of the more... Um, you know, he'd, he'd gone into the party early on because he knew he wouldn't be able to have any career unless he became a member. But he was in moral conflict with a lot of things for many years. It culminated in him abandoning his entire uh, career, which was an import-export. When he realized that this state-organized import-export was infiltrated by the Stasi to the highest degree, he left his career. Wow. And left all that behind. And then, um, so this was a couple of years after that. And he was brave enough to throw this man out and tell him to get lost. So that's something I'm very, very proud of. Um, yeah, that's amazing. Him. I never yeah, knew yeah. any of that stuff. That's great. And uh, then you see, so I wanted to know, um, you know, knowing all of these things that had gone on, I wanted to, I, well, there was a big part of me, shall we say, that wanted to know. Um, I had a feeling there would be a file on me. There was, I was hesitant because I thought, I wonder who could it be who would have spied on me? You know, would it be friends? Would it be somebody in school? Because sometimes they recruited people even before they were 18. It was completely illegal, but sure, nothing would stop them. Um I knew one guy had been recruited before he was 18, one guy I knew. And so I was like, well, it could have been somebody I went to school with. It could have been um, somebody I trusted and confided in. It could have been somebody in my family. Do I really want to know about this? Mm -hmm. You know, that was the other side. And it just happened very spontaneously when, of course, you know, I wanted to bring my kids to the Stasi Museum. The museum for anybody who travels to Berlin, I highly recommend it. It's mm -hmm. located in the former premises of the department of Staatssicherheit. So you really get a good feel for 
what it looked like on the inside. You know, you, all the offices are still equipped in the same way. You see the spy equipment, you see the old telephones, and you can really imagine the minister sitting there and making the decisions that he made. Wow. And we were visiting and I was just chatting to some of the staff in the museum and they informed me that the office to apply for your files was now located on the same premises, like right next door. And I thought to myself, well, if I'm here, what better opportunity than just to apply right now in this moment, because otherwise I know I won't, you know, and I had no ID with me. That was the other thing, because in Germany, you need ID for everything. And the only ID I had was my Irish driver's license. And I filled in my form and they were like, your ID, please. And I produced my Irish driver's license. And there was a humming and hawing over whether or not they could accept my ID. Mm. And so they went back and, you know, behind the um, office doors and they spoke with their superiors. And 10 minutes later, they came back and they said, okay. Oh, and then I, then I felt like, right, this is meant to be. It's just meant to be in this moment. And I handed in my form. And then what happens is you hear nothing for the longest time. You get a letter of acknowledgement that your application has been received. And then there's nothing for the longest time. And eventually the letter came. And that was only recently. And the letter was to the effect that, yes, a file has been found. And then, and I think it's because of COVID, they actually sent me photocopies of what they found. Normally, um, previously, they would have asked people to attend their office to look at the documents. So that would have been very difficult for me to organize because, you know, I live over here. Mm. And then to, you know, in that window, they gave you a four-week window within which to attend. So you had to really organize. I would have had to organize travel quite quickly. But the way it worked out is they sent me everything in the envelope. And what I got was, um, so the Stasi had an incredibly detailed recording system. And what I saw, what I saw was, it, it was very, there was a lot of relief because there was nobody involved that I knew in any way. And what the file was about was an event that I had completely forgotten about. And it was when I worked at the State Library for one year, um, Unter den Linden, which is very, very central in Berlin. It borders on the Brandenburg Gate. Um, <clears throat> so the Brandenburg Gate was not even a two minute walk from my workplace. And this was also the East German Embassy quarter. So you had the Russian Embassy, within a minute's walk you had the American embassy and in fact I passed the American embassy on my way to the canteen every day and one day I decided to walk into the American embassy there was a sign saying public library you know open to the public um, the door was open that's what it was like in them days and so one day I took the courage and I walked in and I kind of looked around me for um, couple of weeks before that to see was there anybody watching was there anybody standing in a doorway didn't see anybody and so I thought right I'll just walk in and I'll just see and I was curious from a library point of view 
um, whether, because you see there was total censorship, so we never saw West German publications. And I was curious as to what was available there and whether you could borrow or you couldn't borrow. You couldn't, as it turned out. And I spent 17 minutes in there as written on the record card. So thank you very much, Stasi. I have a, a little um, souvenir to remember East German times. I know exactly on what day that occurred. I spent 17 minutes in there and I walked back out. And all I remember is there was two rooms. There was a librarian. Um, she informed me you couldn't take stuff with you. I looked through the magazines and then I figured, well, I only had limited time. It was my lunch break. So I had to get back on time. And I was like, right, I better go now and eat in the canteen. And then I left and that was it. And I completely forgot about it. And I never went back because when I realized you couldn't borrow those things, um, my curiosity kind of uh, disappeared after that because occasionally our boss in the library would put West German or, or Western magazine on, on the coffee table, illegally so, um, that had accidentally ended up in our basket for our department. So I saw things like Time and Newsweek, the odd time, and I was kind of okay with that, with that level. Um, and I forgot all about it, but somehow this was recorded. So what I think about it now is I think because it was the core of the city center, I'm thinking that there was camera surveillance everywhere and it would have been very easy to follow me through various cameras and see where I came from, that this was my workplace, the library, um, and to send somebody in there and get the details of who I was. And subsequently they recorded this and the offense was um, entered the American embassy um, you know, never mind that you could only ever go into the library, you wouldn't actually speak to any embassy, any other embassy employee about anything else. Wow. But I think at that stage, you see lots of East Germans had started to escape through West German embassies abroad. And so embassies probably were very much on the radar. Um, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't anything illegal, you know, it was perfectly legal thing to do. Um, but it was enough to end me up on there, to put me on their radar. And then the other record cards, um, a couple of months later, then this was sent from the first recording office to my local office as to where I was registered, living with my mom and dad. And there was actually a name underneath that, a name of a person who signed this. And I thought, oh, this person could still be alive. How, how weird is that? You know, a Mr. Foth. And uh, so that document then opened me up for surveillance. That was the effect of that document. And that, but that was signed in February of 1989. And at that stage, I was very, very lucky, really, because at that stage, the Stasi were starting to shred their files. They knew the end was coming and they were busy. They had a lot of resources taken up with shredding the most compromising files. And so my... Um, process document ended up in a pile on somebody's desk and was probably never processed because there's nothing more in that sequence. So I was, it was a very, very lucky escape. And largely thanks to the year that it happened in, had it happened a couple of years previously, say if I was a couple of years older, there could have been dire consequences to my career, even my wow. personal life. You know, so 
something so innocent and so innocent and simple could have become something very uh, completely innocent you know yeah like I was a teenager walking into a library <laughs> gosh wow well thank goodness you uh don't live there anymore in the under that regime thank goodness East Germany doesn't live under that regime anymore but that would have given you uh, a whole different background to most of your um, peers then when you moved to Ireland and like you said you would have had then self-doubt and anxiety and maybe a low level of depression for a, a long while um, you've managed then to get into working with uh, helping people with trauma and you studied it as, as a psychotherapist and you have done 25 years of that work if not more and lately well you've done the the somatic uh, psychotherapy or sorry sensory motor psychotherapy what's that and yeah so that was my first uh, trauma focus training and it was the best that was available at the time it was really the bee's knees and you got um so it's that change over from just doing talk therapy where you're talking with someone about their issues and that's all you can offer really now that's useful for people who want a witness, for people who have maybe never talked about their story before and they want to open up for that phase, it's really, really useful. So you're confident really and they're, they're telling you all about their stuff and you know they get a boost from that. You often see a boost in that first while. But I remember then noticing, you know, as I was progressing on that path, that that benefit seemed to fizzle out after a while and that really people stopped benefiting and then often would stop attending. And what it was about was, I figured out eventually what really what that was about was that there wasn't any more change happening. So they were still left with their symptoms. You know, they were still left feeling um, those feelings and feeling bad about themselves most of all. And we weren't able to facilitate that change any further on any deeper level. Sometimes with some clients, it would happen spontaneously. Um, so they would be spontaneously working with emotions um, and you could see those changes happening. But for those people who didn't have that, should we say, inbuilt skill or those inbuilt resources to process their own material, we really, and I'm saying we because, I, you know, Carol, you were in that, um, world with me it was for those who didn't have those resources we were ill-equipped that's what I would say now you know and so the sensory motor training um, which I took in 2000 that was the turnaround for me and it was really being able then to facilitate change so it gave you uh, very detailed maps and models and skills as to how to facilitate somebody to release trauma that's stored in their body and it was fantastic it was groundbreaking and I was very very excited about it and it certainly changed the nature of my work you're then becoming a facilitator not just somebody who walks alongside and yeah so that I suppose that put me on that path of really looking for tools that we can use to help our clients change and shift that material 
Great, brilliant. So that 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 was a great initiative to take to 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 train in that, and uh, looking at the body and releasing through the body the and the sensory as well. Uh, you then, alongside doing your organisational development uh, masters, you've then gone into another area which I clearly remember you. Um, 25 years ago, having an interest in, but, uh, you know, a, a hypnotherapy. I remember you saying, oh, look, that room up there, that's a lady who practices hypnotherapy. And I remember you having an interest in that. And then now you've trained as a hypnotherapist in the havening technique. I love the name havening. I was saying havening, but havening makes much more sense. Well, so the hypnotherapy I trained in seven years ago, Oh, sorry, much longer, nine years ago, actually. Okay. That was a training I did here in Ireland. Okay. So hypno hypnotherapy and havening are two different things. Oh, I beg your pardon. Sorry. Well, havening is a neuroscience-based piece of work. It's completely based on, new, on the study of research in the neuroscience area. Okay. So um, tell me about it, because I know nothing about it. Yeah. So where do I start? So havening is amazing. I'm obviously, I'm a big proponent. I've completely fallen in love with it. Um, it was part of my quest, really, of looking for these kind of change techniques, looking into those. And the hypnotherapy was part of that journey, too. And I found that good for certain um, strategies of looking at the past with someone. There's a piece called regression work, regression to cause that you can do and it's it works much better in hypnosis than it does without it okay so that was you know that was helpful um and then the havening i just saw it advertised somewhere and i jumped to it immediately because my cu curiosity was um raised it claimed to be able to change things very quickly for people and i thought to myself well I'll invest the money in the training and I'll find out how good it is. You know, you can never lose really. You just, um, you're always learning something. So, so let me add that to my portfolio and let me just see what you can do with it. And I volunteered, I volunteered as a demo client. Um, there would be demo sessions done during the training. And I had at that point, I had chronic pain in a very particular area it stopped me from being able to sit down so it was the sacrum mm -hmm. um everybody had come to their limits my osteopath was saying put yourself put your name on the list for the pain clinic because there's nothing more i can do for you the sessions with him were you know sometimes they were helping sometimes they were actually making it worse it wasn't it just wasn't budging and, you know, I tried everything as I do. I tried acupuncture. I had tried homeopathy. I had tried various other things. And it was just, you know, there would be a gain for a short while and then it would stop working. And so I thought this is the perfect piece to go into this havening with if they will have me as a demo client. And let's just see what they can do. You know, if they can improve my pain by 10%, I'll give them kudos for that. You know, being very kind of, um, um, what's the word, being doubtful about it, being skeptical is the word I'm looking for here. And so I was accepted as a demo client and um, Dr. Steve Rudin, one of the 
two co-founders. They're um, delightful um, American Jewish twins, twin brothers, wow. um, who have come up with havening techniques, um, okay. a huge gift to the world. And he worked with me, Dr. Stephen Rudin, and uh, the session was, it ended up much longer than was planned. It was a 50-minute session in the end. And it brought me through um, lots and lots of different trauma experiences that I had in my life. And it was like, this was emerging from me. Um, This wasn't something that was planned in any way. And um, the chronic pain was gone at the end. Long story short, and I couldn't believe it. I was sitting there with him and I said, right now, I don't feel the pain. And I had been sitting all weekend at that point. So the pain was quite sharp when we started the session. It was Sunday evening at that point. And I had been sitting all day Saturday and all day Sunday. And I should be in agony. And I was when we started the session. And then it was gone. And I said, right now, the pain is gone. And he said to me, it's gone. And I said, are you willing to give me a warranty? And I laughed. And there was, you know, when you've had chronic pain for 15 years, you're yeah. like, let's see, you know, and I said, well, I'll keep you posted as, as to how this develops. And the thing is, it never did come back. That's you know, amazing. but various other things were triggered for me by that session. It was, this is not now, when I'm talking about that, this is my unique experience. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't happen in that particular way for everybody that it just clears up lots of stuff in one session. That's how it happened for me. But I've certainly found a tool in Havening that enables us to change things in a safe way, in a very grounded way, and much, much quicker than ever before with clients. So, you know, clients who... I would have had, and you know, in my psychotherapy days, they may have attended for a couple of years before they saw any any real benefits. Well, we can do that much, much quicker now. We can do that in very short-term therapy programs. Great. That's that's just it's going to change the entire world of therapy, I think. Um, ultimately. Um, Paul McKenna has said so. So Paul McKenna is a big, big promoter of Havening. Um, but that's my own feeling on it as well. It's like everything is going to change. You know, people don't need to waste their lifetime clearing up trauma for 10 years or whatever. It's an unreasonably long period of time to spend clearing up your trauma. You really don't need to do that anymore. We can do this much faster and still be very grounded, still be very safe. Um, not have anybody feeling overwhelmed, which is really important to me. I've seen all that, you know, in the early 90s, Carol, if you remember, catharsis was so big. We were into all this work with pillows and people expressing their anger and their, you know, what have you. Now, that was the best we could do back then. We really don't need to do that anymore because every time you do catharsis, you know, there's an opportunity to clear something. But for some people, what happens is that you're just reinforcing the same neural pathways over and over. And we don't have to do that. I wouldn't support that now. I don't think it's a good idea for most people. So what we can do is we can clear it so that really the theme will be cleared up and that chronic anger will be gone. 
And that's Yay. to me. I know, I know it is just, it sounds like magic. It sounds like something that's too good to be true. But what I've discovered is it really does work. No, everybody is an individual. So, you know, I don't, um, I don't do miracles, should we say? I can't do magic. Um, miracles, yes, but magic, no. Let's put it that way. Yeah, it's not woo-woo. No, no, it's based on neuroscience and it's based on exactly how trauma is encoded in the brain. So once they knew, uh, once the Rudin brothers knew how trauma was encoded in the brain, they were then able to develop ways that would be able to give the brain what it needed in order to be able to safely decode it. Yeah. And so what came out of me, out of the whole thing for me was, a friendship with Dr. Stephen Rudin, which has survived um, these couple of years. And uh, we talk regularly about different things. And it's just been, it's really changed my thinking. It's changed my approach to therapy. And it's put me into a completely different place, also in relation to vicarious trauma. It protects the therapist, you see, from vicarious trauma. So vicarious trauma is when you start um, picking up the trauma pieces from your clients and you um, start maybe even having trauma symptoms. So it can feed through into your life, into your relationship. And it can be so subtle at the start that you don't even notice it. I certainly would have had um, this going on for, you know, every for periods of time in that 25 years on and off, I would have had that going on. And it can then become from being subtle, it can become stronger and it can really lead towards burnout. And I would have been on the edge of that a number of times. It feels so great for the therapist as well as the client. It's great for the therapist as well as the client. That's right. Yeah. Wow. So it's a wonderful, safe way on both sides of working with trauma. Wow. It's very, very contained, even though it's fast. And it's just wonderful. I love it. That's amazing. So you're practicing now. I am. I am. I'm practicing online. So that all started to happen really at the start of COVID. So Mm -hmm. I went into self-employment 10 days before COVID came and I had built up a private practice. um, which was full. I was full coming up to COVID. And within 10 days, everything fell apart. So I gave up my job of 25 years. And within 10 days, everything changed. And I had to rethink and I started working online um, with people. And I have to say, I fell in love with working online. Havening is done very well online. The results are amazing. Great. And that's what I do now. I have at the moment, no intentions of changing that. Um, I think online is very, It's first of all, it's very safe for both sides in terms of COVID. I mean, the country is still not out of um, the throes of it and mm-hmm. it might go on for a while. And secondly, it's very convenient too for, you know, like some of the feedback I've had from clients is that's the only way they can fit it into their working week. They do it from their home. They don't have to travel anywhere. Um, they can get me even if they're on the other side of the country. Um, or the world. Or the world. Like I've worked with somebody in Saudi Arabia last year. 
um, worked with clients in California, in Italy, in um, Germany. So, you know, you can, and in the UK. So it, working online just works very well for both sides. And when somebody feels very anxious, it can actually be really reassuring for them to work from their own home. To be in their own surroundings can be really beneficial rather than having to negotiate coming into somebody else's world and, you know, finding parking and find whatever and then, you know, walk into my house and, you know, having to negotiate that whole awkward social piece when they come in first. And it's just when you're working online, you're straight onto your issues and you can just completely use that space for to get the best result in the end great so that's brilliant um what are your visions and hopes Susanna and dreams for the future well I have some plans I'd like to take this um business quite far I'm really looking at it as a business now great Um, I kind of don't want to jinx it by talking about it prematurely um but I would like to collaborate with other people. That's part of it. You know, being on your own and working on your own the entire time is not fully satisfactory to me. Like when we worked together, Carol, back in the day, many, many years ago, we were working together um, as a team. And there are aspects of that that are really uh, missing for me right now. So I would like to work with other people and then see, um, you know, see how far I can take it. I would like to take it. I would like to bring havening to the world in a big way. So I've started doing that by offering havening trainings. And again, my trainings are available worldwide because I'm doing them online. And what is your uh, handle online? So what's what, where do people find you online? Where do people find me online? So you can, so people... Well, my Facebook group um, is one good place. Success is an inside job. Um, I do announce both my havening trainings and um, all my therapy stuff in there. That's a good place to join the group, to be directly connected. You get um, direct input from me every day. Oh, brilliant. Um, What is your Facebook group called again? Success is an inside job. Success is an inside job. I love it. Yeah, because yeah. my focus is very much on um, professionals who feel blocked in their career progress because I was there myself. Um, and, you know, they have to shed some pieces which are always, always, always connected. Whether you know it or not, they're connected to inner child trauma. I can promise you they are and we'll find out how. Um, and... And what you're saying now is that it's not going to, you're, it's going to be safe. It's going, not going to be a 10-year process no. of, of releasing that trauma that you can do it in a shorter, shorter space. In a, short, in a very short space of time. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not putting a number on it. My initial program is five sessions. The one-to-one work I do is five sessions. Now, some people genuinely are completely finished after that. Some people need a little more. It always, there are so many factors involved. Always depends. But it will never be longer than, say, three months. 
you can reasonably expect a total internal makeover in a three months period. Wow. And that's like to me, that's incredible. You know, coming from where we've come from, Carol, working with people in a, a medium to long term context, this is just the complete amazing turnaround. And to be able to do it safely is just such a gift. I'm and so blessed a, to be able it's to. It's a lovely offer. That. It's a lovely offer for people that you can do this in a shorter space of time. There's less, less of a commitment financially as well as time wise. Um, yeah, well, so the way I look at it is um, like what I've seen is it increases your earning potential. Like I had somebody recently who came to me with imposter syndrome. Now you can use see me here because mm-hmm. we're looking at each other using my fingers for the what you call them quotation marks. Yes. Uh, the so-called imposter syndrome is what this person came with. Mm-hmm. Um you know, some of these brackets, some of these little drawers that people put themselves into, they're very safe. Um, I think, you know, that's a strength as well as a weakness. It can be a way of describing your problem. Suddenly you have a category under which it fits. Now, what we found, what the imposter syndrome really was, was long years of trauma. There was childhood trauma. There was trauma in her youth. Um, there was trauma in adult life and we were able to clear all of that up in a short therapy program the imposter syndrome had been around making career progress Um, the person didn't dare to step up to the next level in their career and that next level in their career is worth 30 30k imagine 30k a year Mm -hmm. not 30k 30k a year Mm -hmm. of an increase in their salary and they did not dare to go for the interview. They were riddled with anxiety wow. as a result of all the trauma. So at the end, when we came to the end and we did a little bit of future priming around preparing them for the interview, they were ready to go for it. You know, So the earning potential increases dramatically. Um, and this is so huge, especially for women because there's always a ceiling we put on ourselves as to what we are ready to receive income-wise. And you know yourself, Carol, even in Ireland, you know yourself, like this, I think it's about um, women earn about 70 cents for every euro that a man earns. You know, so I I would love to be part of a wave that makes an indent in that and put women into a much better position. Women are also the ones that are riddled with anxiety and depression more so than men. That's interesting. Yeah, that's great. That'll be great. I look forward to seeing you uh, in your future at, at, at a much bigger uh, platform for your work, because that sounds great. And we need it. Definitely. Women, we do need it. Um, so you can see, Carol, I'm so excited. I could keep talking about this for a long time. Yeah. Thank, I could thank you so much. Well. <laughs> yeah, not at all. We, we, we might have a couple of more interviews coming up then, uh, Susanna, uh, as you as you develop your business um do you have any nugget of wisdom or a legacy you feel you could pass on to others uh Susanna yeah so bringing it back to the theme around midlife Mm -hmm. I think my nugget of wisdom would be around the opportunities in midlife to really I would love to encourage everyone to really take a hold of those opportunities to really fall into your center, become 
completely the person you're meant to be, really connect with that sole purpose of who you're meant to be. And it just is the most wonderful feeling. It's just the most incredible, incredible transformation for me to step into that space, especially in the last year that I've really stepped into that space. And I can tell you, it feels wonderful. It feels wonderful waking up every morning. It's like nothing else. And I would love for every other woman to, and every other man, but especially my focus is on women because women do struggle and an awful lot more, I think, than men do with that self-belief. I would love every other woman to be able to experience that. And if there's any pieces of anxiety or depression or whatever else, um, trauma that has happened to you that you need to shift around that just do it just do it because what awaits you at the tail end of that is so wonderful you don't want to miss out on it you don't want to walk into midlife with that reduced fenced in experience still living in that cage you really don't need to and I encourage you all just to do it (laughs) yay that's brilliant Fantastic. Susanna, it has been such a pleasure talking to you. You have an amazing story and I know you have many more amazing stories, but it was so lovely to talk to you and to and to see how far you've come um, since we first met in the early 90s and worked together for a long time. We grew together quite a lot at that time as well. It's lovely to see how you've branched out into different uh, areas and keep developing. I mean, you, there's There's no end to your skills and tools and your abilities. Um, I'm sure every person who contacts you for work uh, to do the work with you is very, very lucky. And I look forward to hearing more uh, from you in the future. Susanna, where will people find you online then? So on Facebook. Well, if anybody wants to send me an email to inquire, um, the best place to do so is info. Info. At Online Hypnotherapy Clinic, all one word, dot com. Info at onlinehypnotherapyclinic.com. Okay, that's great. Well, I will put that up in the show notes as well. Susanna, it has been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your story and uh, all your your wealth of um, information that you have as well. It's lovely to see your passion and hear about what you love doing and Keep it up. We need it. Thank you so much, much, Carol, for having me. I've I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Um, It's been wonderful. And it's great to connect with you again. Thanks so much. Likewise. This is Carol Fitzpatrick signing off for Lady Time. If you've enjoyed our conversation, please tune in again for upcoming shows. And please share the link with your friends if you feel like it was worth listening to which I hope you did and thank you for listening goodbye